Blog Talk Radio. The big fight in Washington, the states, and on the local level is over budget deficits. And as that battle wages on, one thing is apparent. The politicians seem hell-bent on balancing those budgets on the backs of our kids' education. What is a parent to do? Good day and welcome to Momocrats Mama Chat, brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and I'm here today with Cinematic of K-12 News Network, and our special guest who uh, just called in is Lainey Hansen, leader of Parents Across America, and she knows a thing or two about affecting change in our public schools. Lainey, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Great, great. Sin. Good morning. Um, Yeah. Did you want to chat a little bit about just what's been going on in the world, and then we'll dive in and talk to Lainey? That sounds good. And also, I want to let our listeners know that we are opening up the phone lines. I know that most people get us on the podcast, but if anybody's listening live and wants to talk about this very important subject, our call-in number is one three four seven. 9456465 Well, I feel like we can't let International Women's Day go by without some sort of note and uh it seems to me that on several fronts women are under attack certainly in the United States we've been talking in past shows about reproductive justice um the assault on that from the state legislature level as well as uh you know, in Congress with H.R. 3. And, um, you know, we've also been talking about uh, now extreme, you know, extreme cuts to um, Head Start um, programs that would help special education kids, um, STEM education, basically everything that President Obama outlined in his State of the Union speech about winning the future. Um, And I see this as... um, you know, if you look carefully at the House GOP majority passed uh, bill, which they sent to the Senate late last week uh, for their for their approval on the budget, um, it basically attacks everything that was in that win the future speech. So, um, you know, I think we're 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 very embattled at this point in time. I feel very embattled, and I know that um we have a lot of state budget crises that we'll also be talking about later on in the show and we've also been following what's been going on in Wisconsin with the attempts to union bust public employee unions in Wisconsin and now sort of spreading to Ohio there've been demonstrations in Florida certainly the people in Indiana are up in arms and um and I think it's just really interesting to note that after all of the um, turmoil and the uprisings, the popular uprisings in Egypt, that women there are now starting to look around and say, what what is going to be the next regime or what is going to be the next form of government and what part are we going to play in it? And I think I would suggest that we, we're kind of at a similar crossroads in a way because we just had the year of the Republican woman, quote unquote, in 2010. <laughs> With the with the November 2010 elections, and uh, now suddenly I have a huge case of whiplash because we have these, you know, assaults on women and their children if they have them. So, um, Donna, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I know you've been sort of, uh, you know, looking at what we've what we've put up on Momcrats page about International Women's Day and you know other sorts of sources. 
Um, I don't have a lot to add. I um, do find it just appalling. I was following the tweet stream yesterday from Egypt, and it's a very sad thing that the women who were demonstrating there were attacked pretty much like that CBS news reporter was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've they've got a long way to go towards women's equality, obviously, but I feel like we still have a long way to go too. It's just that most of the men the men in America aren't as overt as to, you know, go ahead and grope women in public like that. Um, it's 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 like the things that we care for are the things that are under assault. And it's it's depressing. <laughs> oh, well, on that cheery note. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's important to look at reality and to, you know, take – take the full measure of of what's going on. Certainly the Republicans have been extremely busy. They've had a lot of help from their, you know, funders and and are certainly well-funded, but uh, I'm I'm somewhat hopeful in that I think that there's starting to be a lot of parent organizing, and I think that, you know, this whole language and rhetoric and drumbeat of crisis in the state budgets, while it's true to some extent, it's certainly you can't wave it away, but I think people are also really starting to see what that means in their children's yeah. schools. And I think that's very galvanizing. And I know, for example, in California, where you and I are, that um, Educate the State has really been whipping up a lot of support. People, there are, I think, 30,000-some letters to Jerry yes. Brown, the governor, saying, let us vote. We want to vote on extending current taxes to at least cover some of the budget shortfall for education. Well, um, that is I, his I'm, proposal. I'm mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's actually the Republican assembly people and senators who have signed a pledge saying no more taxes, which is, you know, ugh. you know, they're, they're the ones that we are going to have to um, get to come on board and just give us the opportunity to vote on these. Yeah. So, so and I think the deadline is, is slowly inching back. I've heard now it was Thursday and maybe pushed back to maybe this weekend, so there's still some time for people in California listening to, you know, sign that, and we'll put that on the Momocrats Facebook page again. But with that, I mean, now that we sort of addressed the globe and then California, (laughs) let's make a pivot to New York City and find out what's going on locally, what's happening there, what are some of the hot issues? Um, Lainey Hampson, as as you mentioned earlier, has been a longtime education activist. She has a website, Class Size Matters, um, I believe that's a dot org. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and so she's been active on this issue for uh, quite some time, long before waiting for Superman and you know <laughs> all of the the big media focus came along. Um, and she has also been she's the founder of Parents Across America. So before we get to the Parents Across America piece, yeah, let's definitely talk about what's happening in New York City. You have a new um, head of the school system there in New York City. Kathy That's Black. right. Right. She's the former magazine executive head of Hearst um, Magazines, who was chosen by, <clears throat> excuse me, Mayor Bloomberg to replace Joel Klein, who was our chancellor for about eight and a half years. Um, 
she doesn't have much experience in the field of education, and there was a lot of resistance among parents and teachers to her appointment and actually a lawsuit on the basis of the fact that she had no credentials. But um, the state uh, commissioner allowed her to become the chancellor on the basis that she put someone as second in command that did have educational credentials. And the lawsuit has so far been unsuccessful, though they are appealing in court. Um, I met with her last week. We had a very pleasant discussion. I pointed out to her that um, several audits had shown that the New York City had not been um, allocating money for class size as according to law it was supposed to be. And she listened very attentively but said very little. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, what's happened in New York City is that we've had uh, three years in a row of sharp increases in class size, and now we have larger class sizes in the early grades than we've had in over a decade. At the same time, the mayor is threatening to eliminate 6,000 more teacher positions, which would mean even sharper class sizes um, next year, despite a city surplus of $3.5 billion. Wow. Um, this would save, by the way, only $350 million. But he says that he has to cut these positions because the governor is um, threatening to cut education funding to New York City. The governor is doing that despite the fact that he's also cutting a, uh, a tax on the very wealthy called the millionaire's tax. Mm-hmm. And our governor, who's a Democrat, um, Andrew Cuomo, the son of the former Democrat, Mario Cuomo, is prior- and, the, and our mayor as well, is prioritizing the wealthy over the needs of our school children. So mm-hmm. we have a petition right now on change.org saying do not cut the budget for schools. Instead, um, keep the tax, the millionaire tax going. And this is the choice which many states around the country are facing, including Wisconsin, including California. Uh, parents and others are being um, being confronted with supposedly the, ch- the fact that they have no choices, that education budgets have to be cut because of state deficits. But as I pointed out yesterday in a debate with Eric Hanischek of the Hoover Institute on NPR, uh, who said we had no choice but to cut education budgets and increase class sizes. We indeed have choices. And to ignore the fact is really to give a false picture of the situation to parents and other people who care about our kids and who care about education. We can fill a lot of those state deficits simply by raising taxes on the wealthy, which have been systematically cut over the last few years. And actually in New York and elsewhere, uh, millionaires and people who who actually make over $300,000 a year pay a lower share of their taxes than the middle class. I just want to remind California listeners that with Governor Schwarzenegger, he was famous for cutting the yacht tax. 
Apparently, <laughs> apparently he had a yacht. You had to pay taxes on it, and he cut that. So that, you know, gains him some notoriety. And then I also want to remind folks that he cut a the car tax that you paid when you purchased yeah. a new car. And uh, that that removed about $16 billion, you know, over however many years that it was in effect. Um, yeah. Therefore depriving, you know, the California Treasury of that money, which had been a pretty substantial and sustained source of, of state revenue. Um, and, you know, I think the last at last estimate, our, our budget deficit was something like $29 million. So that was like a good 50% of what our current deficit, state budget deficit is now, uh, you know, used to be made up by the car tax. And, of course, you know, we Californians love our cars, so we should definitely tax those. <laughs> but... Um, I'm also really curious, just to turn it back to New York as well, that, you know, there's so many, um, there's, it just seems inconceivable to me that um, people could live in a city where there's, you know, such incredible wealth as Manhattan mm-hmm. and and also, you know, such need, such poverty. I mean, the, the extremes are, are very clear and, um, you know, that, that people would not, immediately see the benefit of taxing the people who are very fortunate to work at hedge funds, et cetera, and, you know, seemingly from... That's sad. We have, yeah, we have the most inequitable income distribution in the entire country in New York Mm -hmm. City. Right. Um, And the United States as a whole has one of the most inequitable income distributions in the world. And yet our billionaire mayor believes that the rich should not pay their fair share. And we have other people making education policy in this country, like Bill Gates, who is the richest man in America, going around saying um, it's perfectly fine for class sizes to increase. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, this point of view has also been echoed by Arne Duncan, our U.S. Department of Education secretary, who is going around parroting the same lines as Bill Gates, that class size is not that important and we should allow class sizes to increase in this country and instead the two of them want to waste uh, millions of dollars, in some cases billions of dollars, on unproven experiments and fads. For example, um, the U.S. Department of Education spent $500 million last year and wants to spend another $500 million on teacher merit pay, which is paying teachers linked to standardized test scores of their students. And there have been one after another study, one of them just came out yesterday, showing null results for teacher merit pay or and or damaging results in our schools. They also want to spend um, millions and in some cases billions on expanding online learning. Um, Bill Gates has said any teacher can be replaced with a good DVD. And essentially, uh, their goal is to replace teachers with computers and substandard software programs. And in New York City, we've seen a rapid expansion of online learning, and the mayor wants to expand it even more and spend a half a billion dollars in capital funds next year alone um, on technology so that online learning can spread to 200 more schools. And um, it's really a shame 
because class size reduction is one of the very few programs we know for sure works. In fact, the Institute for Education Sciences, which is the research arm of the U.S. Department of Education, which Arne Duncan heads, has said that it's one of only four K-12 education reforms that have proven to work through rigorous evidence. And yet our education secretary has said it's fine with him if class sizes go up. And right now we're seeing at a national level a consensus between the Democratic and the Republican parties on these sorts of issues. And it's very disturbing, and it's, it's, it's a result of the fact that they are ignoring the primary stakeholders, teachers and parents, who have the most stake in improving the system and who both have very high priorities on reducing class size. Whereas the billionaires who are making policy for our country, like Bill Gates, like Eli Brode, and Mayor Bloomberg, are people who don't even send their kids to public schools and have no stake in making sure that kids get what they need. Now, I know that um, small is relative, so I think that uh, what happens, at least in our state, is that K-3, through three, we uh, the desirable number is 20 students um, per teacher, and then it's allowed to creep up, you know, at, to higher levels um, as as the children go into the upper grades. But um, I would po- I would point out that at a lot of private schools, you know, you're not you're getting class sizes of like a dozen, 16 children. Right. Well, most of the most of the elite private schools in New York City and where Mayor Bloomberg and Joel Klein sent their own children to school have no class sizes over 15. Right. But I'd like to make the point that even in California, they loosened the regulations on the early grade class size reduction program. So you could get state reimbursement even if class sizes went above 20. Mm -hmm. So we've seen. Um, significant increases in class size in California in the early grades and also in high school where there used to be a state program encouraging um, ninth grade classes to be kept to 20. Um, I know in Los Angeles and many districts those smaller classes are now gone in high school as well. Yes. In um, fact, in some of the classes in our high schools, there it's like standing room only. You know, there, there there's not even room for desks for all the kids they've assigned to the classes. It's really bad. Yeah, and um, there's many studies that show that class size matters, not just in the early grades, but in the upper grades in high school as well. Mm-hmm. I have fact sheets on our website at classsizematters.org and parentsacrossamerica.org about the benefits of class size. And, of course, it makes sense, and, it, and there was just another study that was published this week on the non-cognitive benefits of, of class size reduction having to do with student engagement. Um, uh, kids and, uh, tend to be on task and engaged in what's happening in the classroom much, much more when they have smaller classes. They feel like their concerns are being addressed, that their questions can be answered, um, they can be included in discussions and debates more, and it really uh, you need a smaller class to create an effective feedback loop from teacher to student and student to teacher so that both understand um, where they're coming from and um, the teacher can really tailor the, their instruction to the specific questions and needs of the students, and the students feel like the teacher is connected with them in a very, very close way. Yeah, it's harder to get lost in a smaller class. 
It's Absolutely. Really harder to hide. It's harder to hide yeah. and you know not show that you've not you haven't done the homework. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. You need to be present in a smaller class. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the reasons why it's been shown to be very effective at narrowing the achievement gap. It's especially important for poor, minor, poor and minority kids and low achievers to be in smaller classes because those are the kids that tend to get lost and left behind. Now, I think class size is such an important sort of lens through which to to be to view a lot of what's happening and also to be an activist around what's happening because um, in order to get smaller class sizes, number one, you have to have adequate planning in terms of facilities mm-hmm. to house the kids. And you were saying that in Manhattan there's really been a baby boom in the past several years, in the past decade. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that we have policy pressures like Race to the Top which has really been encouraging and pushing for charter school growth on top of existing schools. And um, at the same time, but you have various localities that have not adequately planned for facilities to expand to the same degree, like the building of new schools is not, you know, kept up with, you know, the actual pupil headcount, let's say. And I think that's really causing some problems. I know in New York City where the real estate issues are also exaggerated because of those really high, you know, dollar per square foot issues that, you know, this has resulted in some wrestling over co-location issues. And uh, and I think it also has another kind of impact in that in order to keep class sizes small, that ratio small, then that means you need to hire more teachers. And, of course, now we're hearing that in Wisconsin, the average teacher's salary is 46400 and uh, you know the average amount of money that someone whose income is $1 million a year under the extended Bush tax cuts for the wealthy is $103,000. So that's $103,000 more that people who make a $1 million a year get to keep in their pocket instead of paying in taxes, yet we're complaining that a Wisconsin teacher's salary, we're quibbling over teacher salaries that really, you know, in very few instances match what one single millionaire keeps in their pocket from the Bush tax cuts that were extended. Right. So, yeah, feel free to jump in, Lanny. Yeah, well, I mean, we're seeing a big increase in enrollment in New York City public mm-hmm. schools. At the same time, we are seeing generally enrollment increase nationwide. Mm-hmm. So this is the worst possible time to have budget cuts and laying off teachers when enrollment is increasing. It's like a double whammy. Yeah. Um, furthermore, in New York City, we are also confronted with a rapid increase in the number of charter schools, um, uh, two-thirds of which are being given space free inside our regular public schools. And so that's increasing the the level of overcrowding, uh, increases class size. In many, many schools have lost their art, art, science, music rooms, and even libraries to charter schools. And today in the news there was a story that an autistic program is going to lose their access to their programs because the DOE is intent on putting a charter school inside their building. And in every possible way, they seem to be prioritizing the needs of charter school students over our regular public school students. And a study was recently done by the New York City Independent Budget Office showing that if you take account of the free space and the free services that the Department of Education is are giving to charter school students, 
they are getting um, $3,000 more per student than our regular public school students are in New York City. And so this is a real, real problem because we do not, we cannot afford to give up space in our public schools. It is preventing our schools from de, um, um, reducing class sizes, and in many cases, it's increasing class sizes. Um, we really believe that um, there hasn't been adequate planning for space. We've had a, a, a real estate boom in Manhattan and many other parts of the city that has been encouraged by this administration um, by giving them tax developers tax breaks and all the rest. And there's been absolutely no provision to make sure that there's school space that goes along with all this new housing. Um, Lainey, one thing... Um that surprises me is that they're giving up the charter space within the schools, creating like separate academies on the same campuses. Yeah, uh, most very, of the charters. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, most of the charters that I'm familiar with here in LA, they usually give out the whole campus to the charter school, or you know, an existing public school just goes charter. Well, that hasn't um, happened here yet. Um, I mean, charter schools do have their own buildings, and um, the mayor has, has, has a separate fund to help subsidize that. Uh, I think he gave $60 million to Jeffrey Canada to build a new charter school on public housing land, which, by the way, the community also has opposed, the com local community board. Uh, but it, what, what's happened here in New York City, by and large, is that they, he's given space inside existing public schools two charter schools, and the, the students in the, in the public schools have been squeezed out in many cases to rooms in the basement or um, have lost their libraries, art rooms, and, et cetera, to the charter school. And it's caused huge fights inside the building, inside communities. There's civil wars essentially going on, and there's no more contentious issue right now in New York City than charter school co-locations. Yeah, and, and uh, many, many of many of the parents of the charter of the public school students say it's separate but equal mm -hmm. inside the same building. The charter school is many in many cases allowed to cap class sizes and overall enrollment at lower levels, and provide their students with improved um, conditions over the regular public school students because of all the private fundraising that they do. And some of these charter chains have literally raised millions of dollars to recruit students and have put up ads on television and bus shelters and on the Internet to get as many applications as possible, and then they claim huge waiting lists. And some families have gotten up to 10 glossy mailings from these charter schools. And at the same time, the selling point, believe it or not, is there's no room in the public school for you come to this charter school. And we have in New York City something which I don't think they have in many other any other place in the country, which are waiting lists for your zone neighborhood public school. That's just insane. That's, <laughs> That's craziness. Crazy. That's just craziness. And and I understand how it is that parents are battling each other, the parents of kids with in existing schools and the parents of kids in charter schools. And it's just, it's so destructive because um, it's really crumbs, you know, from from a diminishing slice of the pie. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, and and I find that um, just so. One of the more outrageous things is that many of these charter schools are also uh, started and funded by the children of billionaires who could find their own space if they were asked to, but would rather spend money um, elsewhere. Well, I really see it as um, also a failure of um, legislators and other sort of public officials, education officials, so on and so forth, because the reason that so many schools, I see it here in California, you know, are nicely embedded in communities, you know, for, for many, many years is that at some point someone sort of pulled up their socks and said, we're going to exercise the right of eminent domain and put a school here and we're going to plan for it and we're, you know, going to sort of build a community around it. And, um, you know, it seems to me that in in New York and many other places there's just been a complete abdication of any of that responsibility, whether it's a lack of political will, cowardice, or what have you, but, you know, not addressing the space issue for existing schools, which are also growing, as well as for these charters that are sort of added on. Um, yeah, it's, it's really it's outrageous because we've had many years where we knew that enrollment was going to increase. And yeah. I've uh, written reports about this warning the city, and yet their two consultants um, who they pay a lot of money to said citywide enrollment would not increase till 2016, and it happened already in 2009. So um, they've right. been completely off because they have not gotten the proper data from the city that they needed to do their projections. And um, Mayor Bloomberg, who is hailed nationwide for being a great data manager, um, has completely screwed up the data repeatedly on schools in a very almost sloppy and purposeful way. Mm -hmm. And so he put together a plan called 2016 uh, Plan NYC, which was supposed to plan for infrastructure improvements um, when New York City is is projected to have a billion more a million more residents by 2016, and he put together a task force that were told put together a plan for sewage, water, police, fire, libraries, playgrounds, every single aspect of the city's infrastructure, but was specifically told do not look at the need for more schools. That's just insanity, and it, <clears throat> it's hard uh, not to indulge in conspiracy theories that say this is just a giveaway <laughs> to, you know, sort of the one millionaire hand rubbing, you know, rubbing the back of the other billionaire, you know, person. Absolutely. I think that there has been so such a malignant neglect of the conditions in our public schools, including increasing class size when they've gotten hundreds of millions of dollars from the state to decrease class size. Um, and not paying proper attention to the needs of our public school students and making them worse by allowing charter schools to essentially take up home within their school space, that you have to say that on some level this um, must be a purposeful um, plan to allow and encourage the privatization of our public schools to go forward more easily. Yeah, and I think over at K-12 News Network, I've been trying to document, you know, piece by piece, how there's something that we might call big ed, 
at work, just in the way that ConAgra and, you know, the giant agricultural, industrial, factory farming, mm-hmm. all of that constitutes big ag, and there's certainly big pharma. There's now, mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing the outlines of big ed emerging, and that's the testing companies. That's these, you know, hedge fund-backed, very often, you know, charter management organizations, mm-hmm. with people who have no background in education mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um and uh, but purely see it as a very profitable business, right? And, um, and, and I can uh, tell you what the next um, yes challenge for us on the horizon, which is an even huger potential pot of money than either of those two, mm-hmm. which is the online learning industry. Right. Um, when Joe Klein left New York City Public Schools, he became he was hired by Rupert Murdoch to head their new online learning division. And a couple of days later, Murdoch bought up a company called Wireless Generation, which has several uh, million-dollar no-bid contracts with the Department of Education. And people all over the country are absolutely salivating at the prospect of that the money that's going to be generated by this. Because essentially, if you set up an online learning charter school, you can get the entire per-pupil funding um, that a regular public school is given, and all you have to do is put kids on computers with so- with substandard uh, software programs and call it a school. You don't have to get, give them space because they can do it out of home. You don't have to uh, hire teachers because it's all done online. And it is a huge uh, possibility for huge profits for the online industry, um, which is um, just salivating at the prospect. And meanwhile, Arne Duncan and the federal government are are are, are backing this. Um, Obama just yesterday was at an online school in Boston, and Arne Duncan did a conference call with um, with uh, the press saying, just think, we could have, and uh, I, I want to get the exact quote, but it's something something like you could put put a, uh, a, a program on, on blackberries and raise students' achievement levels by two grade levels. Uh, you know, this is... This is Where's the research on that? There is no research on it. There are There is no independent research showing that online learning works, and yet they are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds, and Bill Gates is pushing this as well. And I would like to add also that it's um, it's not just Fox and Rupert Murdoch seeing uh, what a tremendous, quote-unquote, business opportunity this is to get into online education, but often online education is an extension of the textbook industry, which is another sort of leg of the big ed stool. So I think, you know, they're also seeing that, well, we have the quote-unquote content, we have the material. If we can just deliver that, you know, online, then, uh, you know, we can we can make up for whatever declining textbook sales or whatever. Because I think they're also looking at uses of technology in the classroom and realizing that e-books are on the horizon and, you know, all these kinds of things. And I think they're thinking that they want to get a piece of that market you know, also, and that online instruction is is a way to do that and to keep the textbook business in business when there are no more textbooks per se. Right, and I, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I think that there are there are some positive potential there to make textbooks cheaper by putting them online. But what I totally oppose 
is rapidly expanding online learning without any independent evaluation and also the prospect that we're going to be able to get rid of teachers that way and not do any instruction in a you know with with real human contact and i can tell you that we're expanding it very fast in new york city the city plans to spend a half a billion dollars next year in the midst of huge budget cuts um on expanding technology so that online learning can 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 expand to 200 schools next year and 400 schools thereafter and it's a huge um danger in terms of wasted money but also uh, undermining the quality of education in New York City and around the country. I think what um, is also falling out of the picture is that not every subject can be adequately taught online. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if you're just doing math problem sets, I can understand, you know, the appeal of Khan Academy. Salman Khan is sort of like the new darling of, you know, the sort of tech plus, you know, education reform world. Um, Bill Gates has been touting him. And I've looked into Khan Acad- Academy because my son seems to show, you know, interest in math. And um, what's happened is that in his classroom, the curriculum, you know, the state curriculum, he's outpaced it. And he's, he, you know, he's thirsty for more. So I've been trying to supplement on my own with, you know, classes and enrichment and this and that and our own games and whatever it is that we do. But, um, but it's very interesting to me to note that Khan Academy is is being touted by Bill Gates. But what is also very interesting to me is that what's unique about Khan Academy is that he puts all of his math and science and other kinds of t- video tutorials and exercises online for free. So that's kind of an interesting twist in terms of like the whole, you know, hope to capitalize on online instruction. And, you know, I agree with you. I think that for some, in some very limited ways, as like an adjunct to what's happening in the classroom already, as sort of a, a nice add-on or an enrichment or a way to, you know, get um, accelerated learning to kids who otherwise, you know, might not be getting that in their regular, you know, school day. There are really kind of like positive limited uses, but I think the really worrisome thing, and I agree with you very much, is that the idea is that this can take the place of teachers in the schools, and I think that's so completely false. I, I, you know, I challenge anyone <laughs> to, to learn art, music, you know, it's possible to learn those things online, but really you kind of need a human being at the end of a day to, you know, give you feedback and to tell you those things that a computer program or whatever, no matter who it's from, is, is not going to tell you, you know. Right, and I, I also, I also talked to um, a teacher who actually had a fairly advanced uh, class of, because my, my feeling was the same as yours, that it's okay for you know, good students who are dedicated and self-motivated, right. but not for the neediest students. Right. But I also talked to a teacher um, who had a class size of 20 for her physics students, mm-hmm. and she does um, blended learning, which is partially online and partially in person. Mm-hmm. And um, but for her chemistry classes, which are much larger, she said she could never do this because it actually takes more time and more effort on her mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. to make sure that kids are going online to monitor them, to online to monitor the chat rooms, and to give regular feedback online in addition to the classroom work. Uh-huh. So she says it can only work well in a smaller class, believe it or not. So the idea that somehow you're going to 
rid the need of teachers and eventually save money, I think even for our more advanced students is not necessarily correct at all. And we've seen it um, now implemented in New York City schools primarily as credit recovery, which is mm-hmm. a very, very uh, shoddy program where they're trying to artificially raise the graduation rates in schools in New York City in part so that Bloomberg can show better results, but in part also um, because of pressures from the state and the the federal government and CLB. And what they do is kids who have failed their courses or failed even to attend school, they go online on these substandard software programs, and in a matter of weeks, by cutting and pasting answers they get from the Internet into questions, they get the uh, the credits they need to graduate. Right, so it's basically and it's a really, it's, yeah, it's really like a diploma mill. Yeah, and um, the way it's been in, um, implemented in New York City, and I also went and visited um, something called the School of One, which is now being um, implemented in middle schools throughout New York City. And what it what they had is a lot of kids sitting around answering multiple choice questions on computers, and then occasionally engaged in group work with teachers and college students supervising. But the kids that were doing the online learning, some of them were just literally, I was watching them, answering multiple choice questions by rote, doing mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, until they got the question right and go on to the next question. Oh, my goodness. And the, and the guy who was running the program also said they have virtual tutors online. And I asked him, where do you get these virtual tutors? And, and what are their qualifications? And he said, I don't know. We get them through contractors. And so that <laughs> obviously, you know, is, is, raises a lot of questions about their, their qualifications, but are you also going to get a different virtual tutor online every single day? Right. Um, where are they coming from? He said they, weren't, they were living in the United States. That's all he knew. Well, but a lot, of the, a lot of the right-wing corporate guys say what we really should be doing is putting our kids with online tutors from places like Singapore and India where we can get them <laughs> at cheap rates. Well, I don't think that anyone has thought through, yes, there's this revolving door of who knows what tutor you're going to get, so there's the question of the quality of the instruction, and God forbid that your you know, your child gets it told something wrong, you know, what's mm-hmm. the quality control of the mm-hmm. instruction that you're getting, but as a parent, what would raise an enormous flag in my mind is who what who is the adult that has online access to my child, and is this person screened for any sort of sex offender background? You know, I mean, I think that that kind of falls out of the picture altogether, and I think is a very strong objection that many parents would immediately see as a problem with this kind of online tutoring. You know, that is live chat or you know whatever, however they have it set up, um, and. I think that you know that to me shows more than anything the um the flaws in this sort of technocratic um in love with data in love with online to the exclusion of understanding you know sort of the human element, both you know the evil ones who might be predators, but also the more positive and the more everyday ones, which is the the wonderful kind of interaction that your child has with a trusted adult who is their teacher and that kind of daily interaction you know I mean, right I, and as a motivating factor to yeah, huge thing exactly. to be able to establish a relationship with the teacher, sure. get inspired by them, and also by the by your fellow classmates right and all that 
that can happen only in a real classroom with real human interaction. I find it astounding that the same people who talk about how important teacher quality is, including Bill Gates and Arne Duncan, will then go and talk about how we should put our kids on basically digital tutors, um, you know, online learning. It's 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 taking. They, they call it personalized instruction, but it's actually taking real people out of instruction altogether. Yeah. So, um, but that's the that's the that's the horizon. That's the future horizon that's making capitalists like Rupert Murdoch um, and Joel Klein salivate, and they're all doing it um, under the under the claim that somehow that's going to differentiate instruction and lead to better quality instruction. And at the same time, they're they're claiming that you can increase class size and um, and still differentiate learning in a large class because you'll do it through computers. Right, and I think that's just <laughs> a pipe dream. <laughs> I have longed for someone to just challenge Bill Gates and say, you know what, go and teach in a middling middle of the road high school and teach math for one year and then get back to me about your ideas about education because clearly you've never spent any time in a classroom that is not a privileged lakeside private school Seattle private school <laughs> you know setting where you were the student you know you have no notion of what the process of teaching is and i think this is also what's so infuriating for teachers is that you have you know the power of the dollar is amplifying the voices of people who have, may, in some cases, have good intentions, but in other cases, see business opportunities, and they're amplifying these kinds of voices over the voices of parents and and uh, teachers. Which I might point out, you know, there's a gender dimension here because let's face it, most of the members of the PTA or parent-teacher organizations that are volunteering in the schools that are making up for budget cuts by being the volunteer school librarian or the volunteer school nurse or the volunteer, you know, office helper, those are women. And most of the people who are in teachers' unions, not all, but a large percentage, are also women. And mm-hmm. so I really feel like there's a tremendous gender imbalance where the men, the money, and the sort of techno fetish <laughs> is on one side. Mm-hmm. And on the other side are women who are on the ground, who see day-to-day, who understand what's happening, and can see in an individual child's face, like how things are going, as well as, you know, you put a lot of anecdotes together, and that's also data, right? <laughs> but right. Well, we, not, not all not all the good, the, the good yeah, guys no, and are, yeah. are, are, men, are women. Yeah. I mean, look at Michelle Reed. She's, she's about as, as, as tough-minded and as unrealistic. I mean, she's going around the country now praising Governor Walker of Wisconsin, um, talking about vouchers and charter schools as the answer, and firing experienced teachers, which is another um, yeah. canard that the corporate privateers um, like to um, push in New York City and in the rest of the country. They are now, the big campaign is um, let there be layoffs, not in terms of seniority, but supposedly in terms of the um, – the uh, effectiveness of the teacher, which, of course, they want to um, say is based solely on standardized test scores, which we know is an incredibly unreliable way to gauge teacher effectiveness. 
so um, Michelle Ree and those of her ilk were also, of course, supported by Broad and Gates to the tune of, of, of millions of dollars, are, are singing the same line. And it's all um, presenting these things as false choices. We have to lay off teachers, therefore we should be laying off experienced teachers, whereas we know that experience matters a huge amount in teaching in terms of uh, the value and effectiveness of our teachers. And and the other um, false choice is you have to choose between uh, smaller classes and teacher salaries, or you have to have teacher layoffs in general because of the big budget cuts that states are experiencing. All these things are false choices. All these things are presented to us as though they're, you know, dichotomies that we have to choose one over the other. What we need are well-funded school systems, you know, which we could get by making the wealthy pay their fair share and wasting less money on unproven fads and experiments like online learning and merit pay. What we need are um, schools that do not overemphasize test scores to the exclusion of everything else. And we could really create a quality education system in this country that would propel our our children and our nation's future in a more positive direction. Alan Kruger, who um, is the former chief economist of the U.S. Labor Labor Department, has done, and and the former chief economist of the Treasury Department under Obama, has done studies showing that class size reduction yields twice the, the benefits in terms of future salaries um, and other um, economic benefits than the costs. And we really need to be proactive in this way. Finland, which a lot of people hold out as the, you know, does number one on the international comparisons that we fall short on, turned around their education system in the 1970s primarily by reducing class size and also eliminating standardized tests and paying teachers more and respecting teachers. And um, ed, uh, experts on the Finnish educational system like Pazi Salberg has said, if they in Finland ever dared try to evaluate teachers on the basis of test scores, they would call a general strike and walk out of their schools mm-hmm. because they would be so outraged. And that's what I think we should be moving towards in this country. We should be working with our teachers' unions. We should be working with researchers who know what works. And we should be organizing as parents to put the parent voice back in public education. Um, as, as was pointed out in the intro, uh, we formed a new um, national parent organization called Parents Across America. And we're looking for uh, to form new chapters and new affiliates throughout the country. Already in a matter of weeks, we've developed about 15 new affiliates and new chapters. And we really want to get our voice out there. Right now, teachers are being scapegoated, but parents are being completely ignored when it comes to education policy in this country. When Arne Duncan first put out proposed regs for uh, Race to the Top, which is their signature competitive grant program, they told states that they needed to show support from stakeholder groups, including education administrators, the teachers' union, the business community, and charter school operators. But parents were never mentioned in that list. And to this day, they have uh, neglected to check with parents about what their priorities are. And if you do survey parents across the country, they say they want smaller classes, they don't want 
schools closed or turned into charter schools. They want good neighborhood schools nearby with smaller classes, experienced teachers, a well-rounded curriculum including art, music, and science, and gym, and not for their schools to be privatized. So, you know, this is what parents say is important to them. This is what the federal government and states and cities all over the country should be looking towards trying to implement, and instead they're going in the opposite direction. Absolutely agreed with you on every point. And it, back when I was saying about the gender difference, I was really right. talking about sort of grassroots on the ground people. I don't consider Michelle Reed grassroots <laughs> on the ground person. <laughs> but that's kind of my question to you. I love Parents right. Across America, and I, I'm really hoping that it grows. And part of my effort in reaching out to you and talking with you is to really hope, you know, that in, in doing so, people can access our podcast and so on and so forth and, you know, hear about it and get involved and, you know, make their own branches, et cetera. Here's my question to you. It seems like the PTA, the national PTA, should really be a larger voice or could possibly be that one of those larger voices. And so do you have any sense of, like, what their activity level is on this? I think all of us are very much, like, you know, embedded in our local PTAs, and we very seldom get to look up and see sort of on in a larger Well, the PTA, the local. national PTA has been – very quiet on most of these issues, mm-hmm. except for the Common Core standards, which they support and which they have gotten significant funding from the Gates Foundation mm-hmm. to work on. Uh-huh. Um, so we don't quite understand why they've been so quiet on these issues that are critical to parents, but they have been, uh-huh. as well as many of the national organizations. Um, most of the D.C. think tanks and most of the existing national uh, advocacy groups on education, as well as many of those that have been set up in recent years at the state level, like Stand for Children um, or Michelle Rees' new organization, Students First, get significant funding from the Gates and Broad Foundations. Um, so billionaires essentially have been allowed to control the debate. Uh, There's a very good article in Descent Magazine by Joanne Barkin about the influence of of what she and Diane Ravitch called the Billionaire's Boys Club. The three largest uh, foundations that give to education uh, are the Gates Foundation, the Broad Foundation, and the Walton Foundation. And that's the Walton uh, family that owns Walmart. And they all have the same agenda, which is testing, high-stakes testing accountability systems, privatization through charter schools, um, and essentially ignoring the voices of teachers and parents as much as possible. So um, this is this is a very dangerous direction that our nation has taken. Uh, the U.S. Department of Education is staffed by many people that came directly out of the Gates Foundation, The Broad Foundation's prize is housed at the U.S. Department of Education headquarters. At our website, if you look under videos, you will see uh, a very good presentation at our national forum a few weeks ago by Sue Peters, a parent leader in Seattle, who talks about the Broad Foundation. Why do the Gates and the Broad Broad have more influence over my child's public school than I do? Um, The Broad Foundation has something called the Broad Superintendent Academy, which has educated most of the new hires in large urban school districts around the country. 
Um, the former superintendent in Seattle, who they just got rid of because of a big scandal in terms of funding, the superintendent in um, Rochester, New York, the superintendent in Charlotte, North Carolina, I believe the superintendent in Denver, Colorado, and the deputy chancellor in New York City, um, as well as the new appointed commissioner of education in New Jersey, Chris Cerf, who's also, it has been revealed, has a, uh, has a secret plan to do co-locations and charter school expansions in that state, which is a real shame because New Jersey has one of the best education systems in the country. So, um, and, and the Broad Foundation, having mm -hmm. trained all these people, then goes to cash-strapped school districts and say, if you hire our guys, right. we will help pay part of their salaries. Yeah. which is basically like a bribe and should not be legal. I mean, right. can you imagine if the oil and gas industry came, you know, the American Petroleum Institute went and said to the U.S. government, okay, hire our Secretary of Energy and we'll, we'll pay part of his, his salary. It would be a huge scandal. And yet billionaires are uh, with, with very specific ideological slant are allowed to do that around the country. Um, uh, the the uh, National Academy of Sciences uh, came out with a report against the race to the top by saying some of the things they were pushing, including uh, teacher evaluation and merit pay tied to test scores, was unproven by research and had potentially da damaging consequences, and yet nobody paid attention. In the Bush administration, when the National Academy of Sciences came out against their positions on climate change and energy policy, it was a huge scandal and rightfully so, and they were seen as being an anti-science administration, and yet the Obama administration is doing the same thing in terms of education policy, and yet it's getting away with it. Well, I wanted to mention the websites again. Um, it's uh, classifiedmatters.org, and then uh, Parents Across America, that's also a .org, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And you can find fact sheets and information on either of those websites about the benefits of smaller classes. We also have a new position paper on the parent trigger on our Parents Across America website, which is, um, I know, a very controversial issue in California and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And just sign up uh, on, for our newsletter when you go to the parentsacrossamerica.org, um, and you can see a lot of our videos there. Uh, interviews with some of our founding members about the issues, including charter schools, um, corporate influence in education, and others. And I think that you'll see that um, parents really do have a lot in common. We believe in many of the same things, and we understand school issues at the ground level. Yes. And, the, and, and, and the elected officials at the national, state, and local levels are not listening to us, but they need to listen to us. And uh, we hope to be building a strong force to make sure that that happens. Absolutely. And if I can ask you to hold on for a little while longer, we're coming up on our one-hour um, show. And uh, I did want to announce our sponsor one more time, but we can go over. We just won't be able to take any live calls um, after that time. So, But I, I did have a couple more questions. And so if you're willing to hang out for maybe another 10 minutes or so, we can sure. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Donna, do you want to talk a little more about Bubble Genius, um, our well, wonderful sponsor? We're very grateful to Bubble Genius for allowing us to do our show, enabling us to do that. And I thought that a perfect product of theirs to mention this week, given that the subject is education, is their In Your Element Periodic Table Soap. They've made soaps that show the entire um, periodic table. You can choose your element and things like the uranium glow in the dark. So um, <laughs> it's really cute. They have such a sense of humor. The soaps are vegan and natural and lovely. And I hope that you will go to bubblegenius.com. Yeah, they're not and tested that on, said, they're not tested on animals. And I also want to put in a plug for the pie soaps because March 14th is coming up soon, and you know that's 3.1416, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can also buy the pie soaps if you're um, a fan of um, finding, you know, the the measurement of a circle, the <laughs> diameter of a circle, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, so Bubble Genius, they're very fun. They're ecologically friendly and not at all tested on animals, so very okay. good for the earth. So, well, um, we're about to go into our overtime session. Yes. So um, if you're listening live, um, you'll be able to get the entire show on the podcast. Well, I, so. I just did get some emails from a parent, uh, one of our founding members, Rita Solnit uh-huh. in Florida, who pointed out that um, her son was high honors, um, top 10, ranked in his class of 700. He he took online learn courses in Florida and learned absolutely nothing. And they also, believe it or not, offered physical education online (laughs) um, in Florida. And she points out that the Pearson Company owns online learning companies, and they use virtual tutors in India. Yes. So this is not this is by no means, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) a mythical. Possibility. It's happening. It's happening already, yeah. and it's a huge danger because there's a huge amount of money, as Rupert Murdoch and Joel Klein um, know, to be made in this. And yeah. it's really, really scary. She also wanted to make the point um, that you were right in terms of the attack on teachers. It is attacking women um, more than anyone else. Um, the number of people who would be affected by this, women are about 75% of the teaching force who would be laid off um, if these layoffs go through. And so um, it is true that part of the reason the teaching force is is so viciously being attacked right now and being being threatened with huge layoffs and, and, and the loss of a living wage is because they're women. Yes. So they're not talking about this for the fire department or the police department that I know of in any city, um, um, eliminating their seniority protections, but they are talking about it for teachers. And one of the ways they think they want to do is deprofessionalize the teaching force so that you can get in these Teach for America kids for a couple of years and they'll work for practically nothing and will save money that way. Yeah, and I, I just found it so startling to hear debate on whether it would be good to have a teacher in elementary, junior high, high school, at any level, um, K through 12, with a master's degree. And I thought there's a question as to why that might be better. Why, like, why would you not want 
your teacher to um, continue to develop themselves professionally, to get another degree, um, to put additional time and study into perfecting their craft. I mean, that just seemed outrageous to me that someone would even question that a person with a, um, a postgraduate degree uh, that that would be that would make a better teacher, and I understand that there was some reluctance to pay teachers with those kinds of degrees more, um, or you know to help <laughs> help them in their in their path, you know to uh, to to do that, you know to get that kind of professional development. Um, and I just again I think it's kind of backwards thinking with completely wrong priorities. Um, my my big question to you is: Are you getting any traction in having Arnie Duncan and the Department of Education acknowledge that you're out there, that parents are now getting together and trying to amplify their voices and show that, you know, we we are ve- we may be silent in some ways, but we're a very large majority of voters and also people, as you say, who are stakeholders, who direct, have direct input and, you know, benefit from from these kinds of policies. Um, um, you know, I've, I've seen... You know, symbolic gestures on the part of the of of the U.S. Department of Education. They put us in when we protested into the list of stakeholders for race to the top after we, you know, complained about it. Mm-hmm. Like occasionally, he'll throw in that he believes in parent participation and added some money for that in Title One programs. Um, but it's all meaningless. It's so far, it's meaningless token gestures. Mm-hmm. It's not anything which shows that he's really taking us seriously as a force to be reckoned with or taking our issue seriously, or else he wouldn't say this thing about class size, you know, uh-huh. that um, it's I'm going to take it on. It's a sacred cow, he said. And, you know, class size comes out as the top priority of parents year after year. And clearly, he is not listening to us, and he is not listening to the research. I find that when school administrators talk about how they want parent participation. They want our volunteer hours. They don't want to hear what we have to say. Some schools in New York, they don't even want the volunteer hours because they find it too annoying to have parents in the classroom. What they want instead is to make sure that parents help their kids with the homework and get their kids to school on time. And that's the DOE's version of parent involvement in New York City. Um, when Joel Klein came in, he did focus groups with a lot of different constituency groups, including parent, and they had a whole line about parent involvement. And we wanted to talk about class size, the math curriculum, um, all sorts of important issues like that, and we soon realized that what their concept of parent involvement was is how can we make sure that parents help their kids with their homework and get their kids to school on time. That's their notion parent involved. Well, I, I never thought it was possible, but your description of the New York City school district is making LAUSD sound good. <laughs> I didn't no. think anybody could make LAUSD sound good. Yeah, oh well, God, we, horrible. well, we have mayoral control. You have an uh-huh. elected school board. Yeah. They have to pretend yeah. that they care about what the voters and parents think. And I can tell you in Mayor Bloomberg for the last nine years has basically said parents have no business in our schools. They know nothing about education, and we do what we like because we know better. And so you can have a meeting where a thousand screaming parents 
teachers and students show up to protest um, school closings, for example. And the, our Board of Education, renamed by the mayor, the Panel on Educational Policy, will take five minutes, not even discuss the issue, and, and rubber stamp it through. We have meetings that last till 4.30 in the morning because uh-huh. they have to give every speaker two minutes. Mm-hmm. And you have 200 people speaking up against what's going on and one, teach, one person speaking up in favor. And the mayoral appointees vote all in, all in favor mm-hmm. without even having to explain themselves by saying uh-huh. one word. Yeah. It's something so bad it you wouldn't believe it. It's like it's like the it's it's worse than the you know, the the, the communist meetings during the, the days of the Soviet <laughs> Union, you know. It is just astonishingly horrific what's happened in New York City. And the sad thing is that despite everything they've done, of course, uh, achievement levels have not gone up, they've fallen further behind. And we're now emulating those same reforms throughout the nation because Michael Bloomberg has somehow convinced the major media and our, you know, Obama and and Duncan that, you know, New York City is great and we should be doing it everywhere. Michael Bloomberg is the major media. He is, absolutely. He owns, That's a good point. He owns a lot of it. And, you know, they, there was this horrific thing called Education Nation this year that MSNBC and NBC put up for a week with nothing but propaganda from the corporate side. They didn't let hardly any parents or teachers speak. It was Michelle Ree plus Mayor Bloomberg plus Joel Klein, one after the other with their totally biased point of view. And Bill Gates, of course, is a co-owner of MSNBC. You know, it means Microsoft NBC. And they allowed Michael Bloomberg to give a speech on live TV for 10 minutes. I mean, this is like this is like TV in the in you know, behind, you know, the 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 you know, in Gaddafi or something, you know. I mean, it's like nobody allows a politician except for maybe Obama to give a state of the nation or an address from the White House, but to allow the mayor of New York to go on national television to give a boring speech for 10 minutes? Yeah, if you had to pay for that uh, amount of time on on national broadcast television, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really incredible, and it's it's just really scary. And just one more point: I was mm-hmm. listening to NPR about the you know the civil war that's going on in Libya right now, and a commentator who is an expert on Libya said, you know, I'm not as optimistic as I am about Egypt because they have no civil society in Libya. For example, they have no trade unions there, and yet mm-hmm. this is what we're trying to stamp out in our country. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, so it's really, really some, sad. some of us are trying to stamp it out. Yes, some of us exactly. Right. right. Well, I I do take heart in the fact that you are launching this national organization, and I really do hope, as a result of listening to the show, parents get involved. And I also want to um, reassure parents that you know, um, it's not about creating a, a war between the parents who send their kids to the charter schools versus the parents who send their kids to the existing public schools. It's really about sort of public education generally. and um, Making sure that, all kids get what they deserve. Exactly. Because the thing yeah. is, even 
I think there are situations where a family could have three children, one of whom is in a charter school, one of whom is in an existing public school, and another might be attending a private school. I mean, the fact of the I know families like that. Yeah, there you you make choices based on your individual child, and if there's some yeah. kind of whatever, learning disability or something, or just whatever it is, um, you know, they were not suited for that school, maybe it was a bullying incident, what have you, so you had to make another choice. There are choices, and, and you've laid them out really well, Lainey, that, you know, people have those choices already. And so I think that it, it's really not about um, saying that if you're a parent and you send your child to a charter school, you're evil, but just sort of pointing out, you know, charter schools do have a wide margin, a profit margin they have to account for, so parents who are, you know, signing those contracts and agreeing to do fundraising, you're also fundraising for that $200,000-plus CEO salary somewhere down the line. Yeah, in New York City, we have CEOs that make uh, over $400,000 a year for, of charter schools. For, yeah. At the same time, this, uh, our governor is, is, is saying we should limit the salaries of our superintendents, our local superintendents, mm-hmm. but nobody's talking about limiting the salaries of our charter school administrators, right. which are sometimes huge for many, many fewer students that they oversee. Right. So I've actually worked with the New York Charter Parents Association, mm-hmm. which is a great association in New York on a, a bill of rights for parents and mm-hmm. common principles for public school parents and charter school parents. Mm-hmm. And we agree that all kids need certain conditions in our schools. We need small classes. We need experienced teachers. We need um, parental involvement, which many charter schools um, you know, do not even allow PTAs to be formed at their schools. And we need all kids to have their, um, their special uh, learning issues addressed. And many, many charter yeah. schools um, um, either do not enroll a learning disabled kids in the first place or push them out once they've started um, falling behind. Right. And so I also know parents in New York City who have one child who had both children in charter schools and then one of them was kicked out because of special learning needs. Right. And so, there's the process of creaming, meaning maybe if your child doesn't have any learning disabilities, but is just uh, you know a poor test taker or someone who just falls in the middle range of the standardized test scores, and if they're dragging the scores down, out you go as well, right? Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and it's that not supposed to happen, but here. it does. I'm sorry, what was that? I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, I mean, they're not supposed to push out kids because of poor test scores, but they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even even at very young ages, um, we have a charter school here in New York which starts early in the year because they have a longer school year. They start in August and they weed out the kindergartners who aren't well behaved before the regular school year starts. Oh my goodness. So they are weeding out kids as as early as kindergarten to make sure that they have the best sort of test results. Wow. Now, I also wanted to point out that it's upsetting when you hear of an existing public school that has mismanaged, you know, their financial resources and you discover that someone embezzled, you know, however much money mm-hmm. or what have you, and that is horrible, and we need that kind of transparency and accountability for our existing public schools. But I also want to point out that charter schools are essentially, like, self-regulating in, in that they're charter associations and, and whatnot, but there's much less accountability because there is that sort of private fundraising side as well as the public monies they take. And I think that that leaves the charter schools 
open to a lot of corruption and self-dealing. I think you're starting to find um, many, many instances of that. And you've also created a second website that talks about these charter school mismanagement. It's not my website. It's Sharon Higgins' website, who is a founding member of Parents Across America, called Charter School Scandals. Uh Yeah, we've seen a lot of that recently. The The head of the National Association of Charter Authorizers uh, testified before Congress that the kind of charter expansion that is being pushed by Race to the Top in the Obama administration is fine, but they don't have the necessary oversight bodies, either at the national or the state levels, to really make sure that that money is not being misspent. And what we've had in New York State is many scandals associated with charter schools. And the state controller did audits finding misspent money by KIPP and other um, charter charter organizations. And the charter industry lobby sued and said the state controller should not be allowed to audit the use of public money. And what? actually won <laughs> in court. And so the state legislature passed a new law which specifically said that the state controller should have the right to audit the charter school's use of public Mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. And the charter school industry is saying, we are not going to abide by that law. And if the the controller tries to audit us, we're going to sue again. That is just insanity. Isn't then they it? should they should have to give back every cent of public money that they've taken. <laughs> I know it's incredible. They're essentially you know? using public money, yeah, to sue the public. That's insane. Oh, talk know. about waste, fraud, and abuse. And I think there are also organi- uh, examples of charter management organizations where there is a nonprofit side that runs the school, but then there is a for-profit side that deals in the kind of administrative and overhead and sort of supply issues like, okay, where are we going to get our notebooks from? You know, where where do you, you know, art supplies come from? And you find that that's where there's a lot of double dealing where the head of the charter management organization may be his spouse or his nephew or what have you is the mm-hmm. one that runs the for-profit side. So I think parents with kids in charter schools, I understand why they make those choices. Um, but at the same time, I would also urge parents who have kids in charter schools to monitor, their, monitor those charter management organizations really closely simply because there are these issues of lack of accountability, lack of transparency. And in fact, Judy Chu, who is a congresswoman from out here in Southern California, um, I think in the last session, had a bill that was basically, you know, the Charter School Good Governance and Transparency Act, something along those lines. And I'm, I'm hoping she'll bring it back in this session. Um, but it's it's basically saying that, you know, there needs to be that kind of accountability, um, the, the kind of clarity where someone can, you know, ask to see balance sheets and make sure that there is no, you know, out of this pocket and into this pocket kind of thing. Um, so I'm really hoping that that law comes to the fore. And um, at K12 News Network, we've been actually we um, joined up with TopVox.com, and so uh, we actually take positions on legislative, um, uh, you know, bills that are coming up for review. So in this past, you know, few weeks, we've been um, vehemently against HR1 for all the STEM um, teaching and professional development budget cuts. Uh, there for, you know, cutting IDEA for special ed, cutting Head Start, cutting, you know, basically all of the things that are good for kids and that we want to see stay in the budget. Um, But we are also going to take legislative positions on things like um, anti, you know, bullying prevention laws. 
um, which have been proposed and have gone nowhere. We want to see um, this uh, Charter School Good Governance and Transparency Act, you know, come back and have some real debate on that and see that passed. So in the future, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that we'll be working on and, and hopefully working in tandem with uh, Parents Across America and all the other, you know, grassroots groups that are springing up. Um, mm-hmm. That'd be great. I mean, I yeah. think that it's one thing that we should all agree with, that uh, public money should not be used for private ends. Right. And um, we just don't have sufficient accountability mechanisms at at any level to make sure that this money is not misspent. I mean, we have a lot of questions about how Bloomberg and Klein spent all the money they were supposed to be spending on class size reduction, but at least we have numerous audits from the state and city level showing exactly what happened. Um, And yet, you know, they are trying to take that tool away from us for charter schools. So um, you have to be suspicious of such a vigorous attempt to make sure that the public does not get a good look at how um, that money is spent. Right. And it's a huge amount of money. I mean, it's just really huge. My other thought is really in, in aiming efforts both at Arne Duncan but also at Michelle Obama, um, I think that you know she's been very receptive to um, military families, for example, and that's really been a cause that she's taken under her wing. But I really also feel that um, she, if anyone might kind of get like the whole <laughs> uh, sort of gender, unspoken gender divide in what a lot of these um, various positions are in education reform and um, and the fact that there seems to be sort of like a 50% deafness um, filter that, you know, grassroots parents have to have to pierce somehow to be heard. Um, and so I'm just sort of brainstorming here, but, you know, thinking that, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there was a postcard campaign Mm -hmm. to Michelle Rhee about testing. Uh Because apparently she said something about, you know, the overemphasis on testing. Uh Uh And I don't see that it's had any effect. Um, Oh, I I know Michelle Obama, targeting Michelle Obama. Yeah, Michelle Michelle Rhee. I meant Michelle Obama. Did I say Michelle Rhee? I'm sorry. It was a postcard (laughs) campaign to Michelle Uh Obama. Yes. Right now you can go on um, the EdGov website and comment to Arnie Duncan directly. Um, I've been putting that on my Facebook page and the Parents Across America Facebook page. So you should join our Parents Across America Facebook page as well. We have two of them um, to get that link. And uh, I just, I mean, I just don't understand it. Um, the, it there seems to be this this hard-headedness about not listening to parents and not listening to their concerns. Maybe Michelle Obama might be the right direction to go. I'm just not clear that she has really focused on education. I was hopeful because um, um, Biden's wife, Jill Biden, is a former teacher, and she came out very strongly, as did Biden, on the issue of class size before Mm -hmm. the election. And I was hoping that she might be a positive influence on this administration. And so apparently she has some influence on higher education policy, but so far none in terms of K-12 policy. Um, Because as a former teacher, she knows very clearly that class size makes a huge difference. So I'm not clear what the levers are. I would go on the EdGov website. They have a blog where now you can post comments, um, and we have posted a bunch of comments to Arnie Duncan there. Um, maybe Michelle Rhee is the place to go. I mean, Michelle Obama, I'm sorry <laughs> to keep on making that error, but I, I just haven't seen any evidence that so far 
anything has worked. And in fact, it seems like they are, are you know, consistently ignoring our voices. But we're going to be having online petitions first at change.org, and, and we hope to... Um, to uh, involve all the people who sign up for our newsletter and our Facebook page in those efforts to make our voices heard. Yeah, and I think this is a really pressing issue. And I'm, I'm, I feel a blog post coming on where I basically say, Dear President Obama, I was one of your most ardent supporters in 2008, and I'm certainly thinking about who I'm going to vote for for president in 2012. And I have to say, if certain changes aren't made in the direction that you're taking – on Race to the Top, on No Child Left Behind, all of these kinds of things, you know, I may have to go elsewhere, you yeah. know. My, if, you're, if you're asking me to choose between the fate of my child's education and the quality of it and also the quality of education for all other kids in this country uh, because, you know, I consider myself very much invested in, in their well-being as well, um, choose between that and choose between, you know, these abstractions, these kinds of ideas that that sound good but are really kind of untested when you look at it. And as you've been pointing out, I'm going to choose my kid. I'm going to yeah. choose what's best for my kid. And if that means you don't get reelected, that means you don't get reelected. It certainly means I will not be, you know, working to elect someone from the GOP side because they've clearly shown they have no concern whatsoever for women or children. But you know, and and that would be a tragedy. I think that would be a tragedy if we were not able to quote unquote win the future or go forward or bring this country forward and invest in you know our young people. Right. I, I suggest people go to ed.gov/blog mm-hmm. and put their points of view down there. There are a lot of parents who are now um, putting their comments on that ed.gov blog and, um, to make to try to make their voices heard. I think that it is a good idea to 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 contact them this way and to do um petitions and letters uh right uh, instead of uh, you know the the huge thing that was happening in Wisconsin is still happening in Wisconsin mm-hmm. instead of joining forces with the teachers and the other protesters there Arnie Duncan and and Obama ch- uh chose to spend time with Jeb Bush in Florida yeah who is one of the biggest union busters ever yeah, you know, totally, totally opposed to giving teachers a fair chance to succeed and trying to undermine their rights in every way he can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really unfortunate. And apparently, Obama has not said anything positive about the Wisconsin situation in support of, of what, of you know, the public service employees and and the attempt to take away their rights in several weeks. So I find that very disheartening as well. Right. Right. Wow. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to take up your whole day. Although it's possible to, you know, go on um, much more about this. There's so much to talk about. Um, we would love it if you came back. Sure, um, I'd love to come back. But I'd also love to come back with some of my fe- fellow Parent Across America sure. core members. We That'd have, we, you know, our founders are are an incredible bunch of women and men in cities all over the country, including Andra Merida, who's a newly elected school board member in Denver, Rita Solnit, one of the founders of uh, uh, Teaching Not Testing in Florida, Julie Westerhoff, who's been an incredible parent advocate for years, has had a pure in Chicago, and many more that I can't even begin to mention, and, and uh, um, Karen Royal in New Orleans, 
incredible advocate for special ed students and um, can talk about what's happened with the expansion of charters in New Orleans, which mm-hmm. will which will make you cry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be great to have some of them on as well. Absolutely. We would Absolutely. love to talk with and, them. By, and also, by extension, you are all welcome to come to Mamacrats, to come to the Mamacrats Facebook page, to also come to the K-12 News Network website and, and Facebook page. Part of what I'm trying to do in, in creating a sort of grassroots news network is to um, work against some of that propaganda that you're talking about in the in the corporate media and to really give voice to bloggers, um, people who are on the ground, who are in the classrooms, whether they're teachers, you know, whether they're educators or students or parents, you know, but just to give that some kind of voice and some and some other way of connecting um and learning from one another and also, you know, moving forward um some sort of agenda that mm-hmm. um that, that we've all um seeing, you know, in parents across America is is something that we very much all agree on. So, um so that that's basically why I started K12 News Network also to try to counteract some of the corporate media with our own grassroots media about what's happening. That's great. Yeah. So, thank so, you so much. Yeah. Thank you and it's great great to talk to you. And um, check out our websites and again we're coming out with a position paper both on teacher merit pay and on the parent trigger, and check our websites for that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you, Lainey. And thank you, listeners. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Mamacrats Mama Chats.